if only there was a red light that came on at the right time during the sermon, right? Set it to 30 minutes or something. Then the red light would come on and I'd know my time was ticking away. Well, welcome back to our series in Revelation. We have two weeks left. Wow, we're so close we can almost taste it. Or at least I can. <laughs> Through the Revelation, Jesus has pulled back the curtain to show us who he is, particularly when you look around and it doesn't look like he's there. That's what the book of Revelation does. It pulls back the curtain to show us that Jesus is present. It also pulls back the curtain to show us what is really true about the situation that we're in. To show us that, you know, in spite of how it may look, in spite of how dark it may seem, in spite of what's going on in our lives, Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows us what is really true. And through these revelations, through showing himself to us, through showing us what is really true, he encourages us, inspires us to remain faithful to him where we are. That's the purpose of Revelation. Here at the very end, as this epic vision starts to wrap up, one thing becomes very clear. Jesus Christ is unstoppable. He's unstoppable. Nothing can beat him. Nothing can trick him. Nothing can hold him down. No strategy of the devil. No uh, national policy. No slippery deal. No matter how powerful the enemy may look, regardless of the strain that he exerts, there's simply nothing that man or devil can do to stop Jesus. Jesus Christ is unstoppable. And Jesus wants us to take courage from this. Because if nothing can stop him, then there's nothing that can stop us either. But that's not always how it feels, does it? The odds can seem never in our favor. You know, you think the enemy's beaten and then he rises out of the dust with yet another arsenal of weapons. And an addiction that you thought was long dead comes in from the other side. Relationships that seem stable blow up. Churches stagger. People get hurt. You stand up for what's right, and yet it seems like people either don't care or they misinterpret what you're doing. You try to follow Jesus, and, and somehow in the midst of trying to follow Jesus, you end up serving yourself and wondering what's going on. Kind of like superheroes, you know, at the end of all the superheroes movies where the, the enemy just keeps coming in, coming in, and it seems like you're destined to lose, that there's nothing that can be done. This foe is too large, too great, too smart. You can feel alone and threatened and crushed. That can feel like our story. We can feel like the enemy is unstoppable. But the truth, when Jesus pulls back the curtain, is completely the opposite. That the enemy will be stopped. That the enemy has been defeated. That people will be held accountable. That evil cannot stand. Because Jesus is the unstoppable king. And today we dive into a chapter in Revelation that reveals the unstoppable Jesus with his unstoppable church. You ready for that? Jesus wants us to take this picture today and he wants wants us to tack it on the wall of our hearts. He wants us to internalize his victory and then live that out in our current situation. 
like all the other visions we've seen in the book of Revelation, all the imagery that's been used, all the challenges, all the encouragement that's been given, every last strange picture and every bizarre beast, all of it was designed to help us live faithfully today. Revelation chapter 20 is no different from anything we've seen so far in the book of Revelation. It's designed to help us follow Jesus now. But that's not how it's always been read. In fact, this chapter in Revelation has sparked more controversy and conflict in the last hundred years, probably more than any other passage in the Bible. Entire systems of theology have been designed and developed and built on just the first few verses. Churches have divided. Christians have argued. Charts have been drawn. Plans have been made to say nothing about books and movies and projections that have been splattered all over the place. You can imagine that I approach today with a little bit of trepidation. But it's not the point of this chapter. Has it been read? More misread? Can we sort of suck these verses out of its original context to satisfy the curiosity of a few Christians living 1,900 years later? Or should we hear it as it was meant to be heard? To shore up the courage of Christians who are living under the crushing power of an enemy that seems so great. First, under the Roman government in the first century. We've heard about that a lot. But then also down through the centuries. This is a more basic question. It's something that has sat behind our interpretation, our journey through the Revelation during this whole long eight months. Was Revelation written only for future Christians? Skipping over the original situation of these first Christians in favor of us, where we sit now. Is that why it was written? Or was the Revelation first relevant to these Asian Christians in these seven churches in a particular place under a particular government, those who received this letter from their pastor John, and then based upon God's word to them in their situation, inspiring them to be faithful, it helps us follow Jesus today. It's a pretty basic question, but I tell you, how you answer that question will interpret everything you read in the Revelation in particular. Well, if you've walked with us through the Revelation this year, you know how I answer that. I make no apologies about that. If you're just joining us now, well, please don't walk off in a huff today if I contradict or if I, if I somehow come up against something you believe strongly. That's okay. We're in this together. Without a doubt, at least in my mind, This revelation was given to inspire faithfulness in God's people in the first century. Christians who were being crushed by Rome for following Jesus. And it's only as we understand their reality and hear Jesus' revelation to them will we be able to properly interpret the book of Revelation and then apply it fruitfully, helpfully to our lives today. Revelation 20 no different than the rest of the book in that. And it shows us, Jesus, showing his people that he is 
unstoppable. He wants them to know that because that fact, his unstoppability, gives them courage. And that fact, that Jesus is unstoppable, continues to give us courage today. The real question of Revelation 20 is not, what is the millennium all about? Millennium is this thousand years this reference and it's become this huge thing. The question is certainly not, how can I take this out and use it to plot future events? Asking that question will yield answers that this text was never intended to give. I hope I'm not stepping on too many toes this morning, but I believe that passionately. The real question, hear this carefully, the real question is, how does Revelation 20 give God's people courage to remain faithful to Jesus? That's the question. That's the question we're going to answer. That's the question that we need to ask, approaching all of Scripture, but particularly some of these parts that have been so often treated differently. Well, let's dive into it. Revelation chapter 20. The first way that John's vision gives Christians courage is by showing them that nothing's going to stop the gospel from spreading. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. That nothing is going to stop the gospel from spreading. Here it is, verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. In this vision, Satan is pictured as bound, thrown down, locked up and sealed over, unable to deceive the nations the way he could previously. This casting down and binding of Satan is a theme that has been developed throughout Scripture. It stretches all the way back to Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, 18 to 20, Jesus had sent his disciples out. He'd given them authority over demons. They'd been watching him cast out demons. They'd been watching him proclaim the kingdom of God was present and demonstrate that through healing and through exorcisms and driving out Satan in front of them. So now Jesus has empowered his disciples. They've gone out and to their shock and amazement, The demons fleed before them. The kingdom of God was coming. People were being healed. They were finding out about God's love and God's presence in their lives. They come back to Jesus and they they report about their astonishing experience to him. And this is how Jesus responds. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And again, over in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, likely the same writer as the Revelation, Jesus said as he neared the time of his death, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, the dragon, will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, referring to his death on a cross and his resurrection, will draw all people to myself. And yet in another place, Jesus, as he's casting out demons, as he's healing people, as he's demonstrating the power and the presence of God in his life, which brings freedom to people, there are those who stood back and said, what? They said, he's powered by the devil himself. 
That's where he's getting his power from. And when Jesus hears this, he pushes back. And one of the things he says is, no, no, no. What you see is evidence that a stronger man is present. And then he uses this beautiful analogy. I love it. It's Jesus the burglar. (laughs) It's this image of Jesus. He says, you know, I came into a strong man's house and I bound him up. It's the image that Jesus is now ransacking the house of Satan. And Satan, he's over in a corner, tied up. And there's nothing he can do about the fact that Jesus is setting people free. Because the strong man has been bound by the stronger man. Jesus explains his ministry in that way. It's a powerful image. Other scriptures make the same point. That Jesus defeated Satan, bound Satan, crushed Satan, cast down Satan through his ministry. Through casting out demons, through healing people. But also through his death. By destroying death itself. And through his resurrection, by rising again to life, through his ascension, where he sits at the right hand of the Father. This is the the evidence that Jesus has destroyed the work of the enemy. In the book of Revelation, we've seen Satan's defeat pictured in a number of ways. One of the ways is that he was cast out of heaven. He was no longer able to accuse the way he once did. So here, in Revelation 20, Satan's demise is being pictured all over again. Now using different imagery, vivid, rich imagery with an angel who has a key and a big chain, binding him for a thousand years, which just means a really long time, and then casting him into this sealed abyss, disabling his deceptive powers. All of it designed to picture this powerful truth and bring it home to God's people that no matter what seems to be threatening us, nothing can stop the good news of Jesus from spreading. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. How how does it say that? Well, the church, as we've seen through all of Scripture, but in the Revelation, is called to be witnesses, faithful witnesses to Jesus. And being faithful means that we live a life where everything we do and say, things we prioritize, things we care about, everything about us as a church and as individuals points others to Jesus. Where people can see us and they know within a few moments... Within a few days of hanging around with us, they know that we operate under different priorities. That we follow different leadership. That we aren't just the same as everyone else, trying to get ahead, trying to stock up, trying to seek our own comfort. But instead, we live a life that points others to Jesus. We live a life that says, this good news about Jesus is everything to you and we want you to know it. That's what being faithful to Jesus looks like. Pointing the world to Jesus who is life given for them. The vision here shows that Satan cannot hinder us in that. That he's bound. That he's been cast down. That he's been defeated. That he might still wage his war, kind of like a mafia boss in prison. He might still wage his war through his various henchmen. He might still try to manipulate and control us and threaten us. But we find out that this dragon, who's roaring over in the corner, chained up, is toothless. He can't do anything. He has no power. He has no ability to gather any kind of force against us. And as God's people, we can witness, we can point people to Jesus, we can gather and worship and live this faithfulness out with total impunity. (laughs) We can do that with power, with effectiveness. We can love people in the name of Jesus and unbelievably... People come to know the love of Jesus and begin to experience His transformation in their lives. 
We can tell about God's goodness in our lives, and men who had resisted the work of God begin to realize there is a God, He is good, and they bow their knee to Jesus and accept His leadership in their life. We can reveal the kindness of Jesus to our friends, and women who have longed to be loved discover that they're loved by one who will never forsake them. And they turn their life over to Jesus. They begin to delight in their Savior. And, and, and this, and I love this, and there's nothing the devil can do about it. There's nothing he can do about it. He's been stopped by an unstoppable king. With his hands tied, his abyss sealed, Satan watches helplessly as the people of God continue to plunder his house. I love this. As we continue to witness, continue to serve, continue to love, continue to walk walk into dark places and say, you know what? There's been a change in leadership. There's good news. And I would like to tell you about it. As we continue to go into people's lives and into into places where they're, they're so caught in shame, where they're so broken in relationship, and we say, you know what? There's another way. Let me tell you another story. Let me show you a different alternative ending. Let me reveal an alternative vision of reality. Let me tell you about Jesus and his love for you. And nothing can stop us because Satan is helpless to do anything against the church. That gives us courage. That gives us incredible courage. If nothing can stop the good news from spreading, then what are we waiting for? But there is a price that Christians pay. We know this is true. Active, vibrant witness costs lives. Costs comfort. Costs our agendas. There's still resistance in the world. Futile though that resistance may be. This has been shown over and over and over again. It's been shown through the revelation. It's been shown through church history. It's been shown today and even today among our own brothers and sisters. There's still resistance. These Christians in the early days of the church, they had seen it. They would see it again. So what about that? What about those who, yeah, okay, if, if Satan's been defeated and if Jesus is on the throne, how come they're getting killed? How come they're still suffering? How come things, and what about them? What about those who've still been crushed? Well, this vision continues to show us the real story, to, again, pull back the curtain so that we can see the facts behind the sacrifice that's been made, whether it's in our own lives or down through history. And it is encouraging. The next part of this vision helps us see that no matter what happens to us, nothing's going to stop the saints from reigning. Listen to this, verses 4 to 6. I saw thrones on which were seated those who'd been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark in their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. For a thousand years. First John sees Satan cast down. Now he sees the saints lifted up. Thrones, you might remember, is arguably the central image in the book of Revelation. It's used like somewhere close to 40 times. 
over and over again, thrones symbolize authority. What do we see here? All these faithful Christians who stood up for Jesus in the face of opposition and violence and persecution and then paid for it, died. Now they're seated on thrones. They're reigning with Christ. They're blessed and holy. They're in the clear. They've been made priests of God and of Christ. This is an incredibly empowering image. Think about it. Think about it from their perspective. Think about it from the perspective of these Christians who are receiving these letters, or maybe maybe just a few decades later, who've got this in their possession, and they've internalized this vision. And now they've watched as maybe a friend or or a brother, maybe even their own kids, a son or a daughter, have been arrested because they've been faithful to Jesus. Arrested by oppressive authorities. Arrested according to government policy. They've been arrested... They've been hauled off. They've been condemned to die. Some of them for sport in an arena. That maybe you, watching from a distance, you saw your own son, your own daughter, your own brother, your own sister. You saw a Christian friend be torn to shreds for sport. And then after it was all over, that maybe, maybe someone got permission to gather up the pieces that were left over so that you could be buried, so that they could be buried. This is the ugly, violent abuse that God's people endured from the beast of Rome. But think about it. Think about what this vision does for these people. Where are these martyrs now? What is their fate? Was their sacrifice all for nothing? Was it a waste? No. Not only did their sacrifice for Jesus, their faithfulness in the face of persecution have effect because It led many people to follow Jesus. We know this is true. We know this is true back then. We know this is true now. That when people lay down their lives for Christ, others come to follow Jesus. Something powerful that the Holy Spirit does. That when the church willingly lays down their life for others, willingly lays down their life for Christ, whether it's literally laying down their life or whether it's actually sacrificing the things that matter to you so that others can come to know Jesus. When we do that, lives are changed. It has actual effect on people, on their destinies. But there's even more to it here. Not only is there the witness effect, but now, now they reign. Now they're sitting on a throne. They're exalted with Christ. Can you imagine? There's my daughter. She's a priest. There's my son. He's got a crown on his head. There's old Antipas. We got killed back in a few chapters in Revelation. There's old Antipas, and look at him. He's reigning on a throne with authority in Jesus' name. Now, you and I may not understand what all this reigning imagery means. But I do know this. This vision of unstoppable saints reigning with Christ would have transformed the pain and the fear and the loss of these Christians who were facing death, who were facing persecution knowing that, yes, their bodies might be ripped in two, but now, right now, as we speak and as we serve and as we witness, those who have died for Christ, those who've gone on before us, those who've been faithful to death, whether it's death in the short term or death at the end of their old age, those who've remained faithful to Jesus are now whole and alive in the presence of God, reigning as kings and resurrection is coming. This is an empowering image to the people on the ground. Nothing's going to stop the saints from reigning. But there's more. The vision goes on to show us that nothing's going to stop Jesus from winning. 
Listen to this. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What we hear in these verses is a recap of something we've already heard in the Revelation. There's a group of nations that gather. They try to finish God's people off, but Jesus wins. There's no war. There's no epic battle scene where you're not sure who's going to win. Jesus just shows up and it's over. Revelation is known for multiple recaps showing us the same thing over and over again from different angles with different people in mind using different imagery. We saw the same thing at the end of chapter 19 just previously. We saw the same thing back in chapter 16. We saw the same thing back in chapter 12. And the conclusion is quite simple. Satan is a loser and Jesus wins. Period. And only in this stage here, in this final image, we're now here at the end of this long vision of Revelation. Jesus takes it right to the limit, depicting a full and total victory with complete destruction of the enemy. They really are done. Well, what does this do for Christians? What does this do for these brothers and sisters of ours 1,900 years ago? What does it do for us? This final victory shows God's people, shows you and I, who are still in the trenches, still facing what seems like a daunting enemy. It shows us that Jesus is unstoppable, that no matter what happens to us, Jesus wins. And if he wins, we win. Nothing's going to stop the good news of Jesus from spreading. Nothing's going to stop the saints of Jesus from reigning. And nothing's going to stop Jesus from winning. Hold that firmly in your mind next time you go into battle. Jesus is going to win. Next time you come up against a situation that seems impossible, say to yourself, no matter what happens, Jesus is going to win. You aren't sure what's going to happen with your cancer or your heart condition. No matter what happens, Jesus is going to win. You don't know if you're going to be able to patch up your marriage. You don't know if you're going to be able to reconnect with your kid. You don't know if you're going to be able to pass that exam. But no matter what happens, Jesus is going to win. You've stepped out in faith. You've, you've reached out to a friend and you've gotten some pushback. Well, no matter what happens, Jesus is going to win, right? Whatever you face, whatever trial comes your way, whatever difficulty or sin or hurt or challenge, you and I can say with confidence that no matter what happens, Jesus is going to win. Let's try it. No matter what happens, Jesus is going to win. It's just true. It's just true. It doesn't matter. I mean, things matter. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't matter ultimately because Jesus is the winner. And knowing He's going to win when we're in a dark place, knowing He's going to win when we're struggling, knowing He's going to win when it looks like all hope is lost, can give us courage to stay in the battle. Courage to continue to sacrifice. Courage to follow Jesus when He leads us further into difficulty. When Jesus, through His leadership, calls us as a church, 
calls us as families, calls us as individuals into people's lives that are messy, into difficult situations, when He calls us to reconcile with people that we have a broken relationship with, when He calls us to forgive those who've oppressed us, when He calls us to serve those who don't seem to care. All of those things, when Jesus calls us into those situations to love the world that is so broken and so desperately needs His freedom, when He calls us into those places, we can do that with courage because we know that no matter what happens, Jesus is going to win. Wow. Let's just stop right there. (laughs) But it's not quite done, right? We've got one more scene. And in this scene, things come to sharp focus. That Jesus sees what's going on. That what we do matters and how we live matters and who we worship really counts. And that's how Revelation 20 ends with this final picture. That nothing is going to stop Jesus from judging. Hear it. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This final image is powerful. We've covered it before, multiple times now, through the Revelation. Over and over again, Jesus has revealed the stark reality that our choices matter. That as people created in the image of God, we've been given freedom for who we will choose to worship and will be judged by those choices. Jesus judges in one of two ways. This is true through Scripture. It's pictured here metaphorically at the end with this idea of books. Either people are judged on the basis of what they have done, or they are judged on the basis of what Jesus has done. They're either judged on the basis of what they have done, or they're judged on the basis of what Jesus has done. The books are opened here in this image and the deeds and the actions and the biographies, as it were, of each person has all been captured in those books. Every beautiful and every ugly thing. Every time you were selfish, every time you served another person, every stain, every sin, but also every sacrifice, all the things that you and I would rather never think about again, all those things we wish we could do over, All those things, if it were shouted out loud in a public setting, we would cringe, run, and deny we ever knew ourselves. All those things written down in a book and weighed out in the balance. And we have to account for it. But then there's also this second book, which is also opened, and it's called the Book of Life. And that's the book, as we see, that really makes the difference. You see, no matter what action or thought no matter what sin or good that's been recorded in the big book of deeds, it's having your name written in this other book that changes everything. Some have pictured it like this. When you trust Jesus with your life, 
When you choose to say, you know, I've made a mess of things, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn away from leading my own life and I'm going to follow Jesus. We call that repentance. And I'm going to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe in what you did on the cross applied to me. I believe you died and rose again. I'm going to follow you. You make mistakes, but you know this is who you're following. You've trusted Jesus to deal with your sin. He's given us his Holy Spirit who is now living within us. When that happens... It's like your name gets transferred over to this other book, the book of life. And once your name's been transferred over to the book, it doesn't mean that everything that's already written, all those actions and thoughts and those ugly things you'd rather ignore as well as those good things you wish they would just focus on, all those things, it's not as though they've just been forgotten. No, whatever judgment we would have been assigned for our sin, which we know in the Scripture is death, There's a little note beside it. If you go and look closely, there's a little note beside it that says, covered by Jesus, see other book. What about that betrayal? Covered. What about that big mistake I made 25 years ago? Covered. What about that addiction that I just wrestle with and wrestle with? Covered. What about the fact that I made a mess of things and I felt covered. It's all been covered. Refer to the other book. What about the time you helped somebody or the the years of service? General, Oh, it's been noted too, but it's been covered. See the other book. And we realize in this that the real question comes down to whether or not we'll let All the things we've done stand in judgment of us. We'll say, I'll account for it. Or whether we'll say, I'll let Jesus take that. I'll let Jesus be the one who takes my judgment for me. But either way, what this image tells us at the end of Revelation, either way, nothing's going to stop Jesus from judging. He'll either say, I was willing to pay for that. I died for that. I did everything possible so that you could have your slate wiped clean. But if you insist on paying for it, you can. Or, Jesus will look at us and go, oh, no problem. Already been covered. Already been dealt with. It's one book or the other. And the books here in Revelation stand simply as a metaphor of the stark choice that is before us. Of who we will worship. Of who we will follow. And it challenges us right where we're at. Especially in those moments when we're, when we're thinking about giving up, when we're thinking about compromising. Remember last week, Jesus issued another challenge to our compromising, called us again to loyalty. But here, at the end of chapter 20, he really poses the same question. He probably turns up the dial a little bit and says, look, everyone's going to stand in front of me one day. Nothing's going to stop me from rendering judgment. I am the king. I'd really like you to let me take your judgment for you. But you can take it for yourself. Which will it be? And how that challenges the people in the day that received this revelation, how that challenges us today, is it reminds us again (laughs) that our choices matter. That who we're following matters. That who we trust and who we worship matters. Well, there it is, Revelation 20. This bold, I'd say, second-to-last vision in Revelation. It wasn't designed to satisfy our curiosity. It was designed to empower our courage, our faithfulness, 
our witness. Well, practically speaking, as we finish today, what difference does this vision make in our lives? What are we going to do because of it? I think four things following along with what we've already heard. The first thing is, knowing that nothing's going to stop the good news of Jesus from spreading, we are going to witness boldly. We're not going to cower off because we're thinking, this can't work. That in spite of all our best efforts, we're just going to kind of keep to ourselves and be quiet about our faith and, and just sort of hold the line over here. We're going to realize, based on this vision, that, wait a minute here. We don't need to hold back. We can be bold. We can be courageous. We can get out there. We can start leaning into people who need to know the love of Jesus. Now, I'm not, you know, you know this, I'm not talking about transforming yourself into some sort of Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde and becoming really weird with your faith. I'm not talking about getting suddenly aggressive and pushy. I'm talking about getting sacrificial. I'm talking about getting real. I'm talking about actually leaning into relationships that you already are in and loving them with the love of Jesus that brings good news and freedom into their lives. And I'm talking about doing that with courage and with boldness because nothing can stop the good news of Jesus from spreading so we can witness boldly. I think it does for us. I think if we fix our eyes and our attention on the fact that nothing can stop the good news from spreading, then we're going to realize that, wait a minute here, as I lean into relationships, as I love my neighbor, as I get the boldness to actually speak about Jesus and what he's doing in my life, it will have effect on the people that I know and love. That men and women and children in our valley and in our lives will come to know the freedom and grace of Jesus. We're going to witness boldly. The second thing is, knowing that nothing's going to stop saints from reigning, no matter what the sacrifice is, no matter what it costs us, that we can live hopefully. We can live with hope, knowing that, yes, there can be tough times. Yes, the church down through the ages has faced opposition. But when we realize that there's nothing that's going to stop us from reigning with Christ, there's nothing that's going to stop us from being all that He's designed and created us to be, well then, we can live with hope, even when we suffer. The third thing, knowing that nothing's going to stop Jesus from winning, I think we've beat this one home. We're going to fight confidently. We're going to know that no matter what happens, Jesus is going to win. That changes everything. And when I say fight, I don't mean fight with arms. I mean fight with prayer. I mean fight with sacrifice. I mean fight the way the Lamb fights, by laying down our lives for those around us. By saying, there's nothing that matters more to me than the men and the women and children who I am connected with coming to know the love of Jesus that will change their lives. And I'm going to fight with confidence because I know that no matter what happens, Jesus is going to win. And, of course, the fourth knowing this big picture that nothing's going to stop Jesus from judging, we are going to act accordingly. What we do matters. What we do really matters. That's what this says. It doesn't, just because Jesus has covered our sin doesn't take away from the fact that what we do matters, who we worship matters, who we trust matters, how we live matters. Jesus cares about that. And he calls us to live faithfully for him, to act accordingly to the fact that as he has pulled back the curtain and revealed who he is and what's going on and where he's taking us, that we need to act accordingly. We, as the body of Christ, need to act according to the truth that Jesus is the king, that he 
is unstoppable. And if he's unstoppable, then so are we. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the unstoppable king, and we're going to stick with you. Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with boldness and hope and confidence to follow you with faithfulness where you've called us to go. I pray this for us as the Erickson Covenant Church, as a corporate community, that in the things we care about, in the things we prioritize, in the direction that we head, that we would do that with this confidence that you are in us and leading us and that you are unstoppable. And for our families and for us as individuals as we follow you, I pray that we would be filled with this vision of your unstoppability and that each day we would live a life that points others to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.